Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're obsessed with her, and you're obsessed with her daughter! Right, easy, Geraldo. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking your good bag and your cheap shoes. We're talking queer icon Precious the Poodle. And we're talking an evil white gay pitting a tiny lesbian against a trans woman and then going on vacation. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking fava beans, Chianti, and having old friends for dinner. Uh, You know, I've often wondered if the Chianti and the fava beans go well together, and I may have a game to play at the end. Oh, okay. (laughs) We haven't done a game in a long time. I know. We'll see. This, This is an unusual episode, potentially, so we'll see if we have time or if it fits. Well, everyone, we are discussing, in case our really on-the-nose clues didn't clue you in, whoa, Mm -hmm. clue, clue, Uh, we are discussing Jonathan Demme's The Silence of the Lambs, a bit late for its 30th anniversary, but it's the same year, so I'm going to count it. Exactly. This is what we're going to be doing all year long. (laughs) Absolutely. Man, this this is a lot of a film, and so I actually don't think we're capable of doing this by ourselves, Joe. Nah, let's bring somebody else in. All right, everyone. Well, she is one half of the Horror in Session podcast, a podcast in which one horror expert discusses all things horror with one horror newbie. She's also got bylines at Bloody Disgusting, Fangoria, Screen Queens, and We Are Horror. Please welcome Reina Cervantes. Hi, hello. Hello! (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the show. Yeah, very glad to be on and to talk about this, uh... Very, uh, how should I put this? Um, Mm -hmm. this movie, it's very, very strong feelings towards this movie. (laughs) Oh, good. We encourage strong feelings. Yeah, well, no, I mean, we can, like, I always start off by saying, like, you know, oh, like, what made you want to come talk about this movie? And so I don't see a reason to (laughs) change my habit. So, Raina, yeah, what what is your relationship with this film? Mm, Well, Growing up, this was always the movie that would be on at my grandmother's house, ironically. Hmm. Um, Like, just on repeat? Yeah, like, she would watch it on, like, VHS, and then eventually when it started to get network TV showings, like, she would just still watch it. Like, every time it's on, it's, like, would be on her TV in her house, and she babysat me a lot growing up, so I've kind of seen this film, like, so many damn times. (laughs) Mm-hmm. interesting do you know if she found it scary is that why she was just watching it all the time well my grandma kind of has like a twisted film taste like me um this is oh, the same okay. grandmother that would take me to go see every single saw movie each year what grandma <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i think i think she just thought it was like kind of a badass movie if i'm being real <laughs> I, okay. I see this is like my judgment coming into it because i was like oh she probably just was like oh it's an oscar winning film so i'm gonna watch it a lot and that was really no, <laughs> the opposite no. of what it was <laughs> the opposite my grandmother was the type to like my grandmother took me to see my first r-rated theater uh, r-rated movie in theaters it was do you know what it was, it was? yes it was uh freddy versus jason what oh, wow yeah <laughs> i'm loving your grandma 
yeah i if it wasn't for her honestly i don't think my horror taste probably would have developed as much that and mm. my parents were always like showing me horror movies growing up so i guess it runs in the family well how old were you when Freddy versus jason came out that was 2003 right yeah 2003 i was 10 years old Okay, yeah. Um I'm I'm a little jealous. So that and Final Destination 2 are the first R-rated horror DVDs I ever owned. I was not allowed to go see them in theaters, but I did own the DVDs because my girlfriend at the time, uh I would have been 14 or 15, uh bought them for me and left them in my locker for my birthday in 2004. Oh wow. God, y'all are such babies. Reina, I literally just realized you weren't even born when The Silence of the Lambs came out. No, I was not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like this podcast anymore. I'm leaving. <laughs> it's okay. We're good. We've got all age, well, all age spectrums. We've got like, you know, like generations, early decades. 30, mid 30s and, you know, approaching 40. I'm not that young. I'm almost like to my 30s. <laughs> Are you sweet Joe angel? is just like, Joe's eye is twitching right now. <laughs> it, it's more like, I know that we have listeners in our 50s who are just like, all of you can shut the fuck up. <laughs> What's this young girl coming on here talking about Silence of the Lambs? She doesn't know shit. <laughs> Pretty much. She wasn't even alive when Silence of the Lambs was out. Yeah, for real. <laughs> okay, so you mentioned that you saw it a lot at your grandmother's house, but like, at what point did you start to, I guess, form your own opinion of it as like a horror fan? Uh, Honestly, probably around the same age that I did see Freddy vs. Jason, because... Once again, my parents introduced me to horror films, so I started to watch them seriously rather than, oh, it's just background noise for mm -hmm. my grandma babysitting me. And my dad was super into uh, Manhunter, and he had shown me that. And he's like, oh, there's like technically a sequel with like quotations with his fingers. Um, <laughs> right. And he's like, and it's called Silence of the Lambs. And I was like, oh, wait, those movies are connected. So right. I sat down and watched uh, Silence of the Lambs seriously, probably around like 10 or 11 years old and formed uh, actual opinions about it. <laughs> it's so interesting. I'm actually jealous of you right now because uh, the first time I ever heard of this movie, I remember seeing the box for it you know, with the uh, with Jodie Foster's face and the death's head moth on her uh, mm -hmm. and Blockbuster. And I remember, oh God, I was probably seven when I saw it. And I was asking, I got in the car and I was asking my parents because the way my horror development was as a child was like my dad would just tell me the plots of all these movies um because i wasn't allowed to watch them so he would just say oh well this happens and this happens and this happens and mm -hmm. the silence of the lambs is the first one that my mom stopped him from telling me what it was about and what was happening because she didn't think that the what what buffalo bill was doing was even like the like hearing of what it was was appropriate for a 7 year old to hear mm -hmm. so i did not get to see i don't think i probably saw it for the first time until i was in high school actually so much later in my teenage years so can I ask a clarifying question? Was mm -hmm. it the skinning of women or was it the more problematic parts that we're probably going to have to talk a lot about? I think it was both. Um, I mean, my mom grew up very Catholic. And so, I mean, I, I don't, I, I can't, I don't think my parents were having like strong conversations about queerness with, with this particular film. I don't even like, I don't even know if they would have mentioned transgenderism in it. Uh, but it, I want to say it was mostly just, it was, it was surface level, the skinning and a woman's suit less. So right. like, Oh, this is a gay character or a queer character. I'm sorry. And we can't let him hear about it. 
Um, I think I think it was more the grotesque aspect of the actual skinning and suiting that it was the reasoning behind it. Hmm. Okay, that was that was the only aspect my parents were ever really worried about growing up. Um, They weren't they weren't ever worried about me seeing the queer aspect of it. They never tried to shield me from that or anything. Um, Mm -hmm. It was always the the violence. Yeah, the violence, the gore, the violence towards women and whatnot. Did you find that your family was ever like, um, cause my, my mom was more concerned with sexuality than she was with violence and horror films. So like, I mean, mm-hmm. granted again, I still couldn't watch them if they were R rated, but mm-hmm. if I was like, as I got older, it was easier for me to convince her to let me watch an R rated movie. If it was heavier on violence and light on sex, as opposed oh to vice versa. God, you are so American. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they, they didn't really like the first ever like horror movie they showed me was Halloween, which has violence and nudity. Mm-hmm. And then I think when I was like, God, I think I was like 14, 15 when my dad showed me cruising. Oh, <laughs> what? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow, Raina. <laughs> so they've been, they've always been pretty open about what I watch. Um, They always instilled in me, like whenever they showed me like intense stuff growing up, it was always like, you know, this is just a movie. It's just the work of fiction. Like, okay. this didn't happen. They were very comforting in ways like that. And then, mm-hmm. obviously, being 15, my dad was jokingly walked in with cruising, and he's like, you gotta see this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I sounded shocked because I... I guess I'll I'll check myself and say, hmm, that seems like it's a very young age to be dealing with mature content. But <laughs> it sounds like the way that all of your guardians were approaching this sounds way better than either Trace or my parents were approaching potentially sensitive and or damaging material. Like, I think by addressing the films as works of art, but also works of fiction, you can actually have productive conversations about them as opposed to just censoring them or saying, oh, what is this shit you're watching my parents had the mindset of like oh well when they get older they're gonna end up seeing it anyway like (laughs) so true because we all do or they're gonna sneak over to our friends and and watch it so Mm -hmm. oh that's how i watch austin powers for the first time because i was not allowed to watch that either well there you go that's a different podcast (laughs) (laughs) Uh, joe and what about your connection with this movie how did you come across this in your youth So I'll be honest, I can't remember when I actually saw it for myself, but my initial introduction to it was when my family went to visit my aunt and uncle's house, and I overheard my aunt telling my mom about this film. I didn't even know what it was until later when I realized like what the content was that she was talking about, but my aunt was fixated on how horrifying this film was because of what happens to not the women, but actually what happens to Jodie Foster character so her vivid retelling of the film was all about the night vision sequence at the end and how terrifying that is as a woman to be put into a position where a man might be stalking you in the dark and you wouldn't be able to see or do anything about it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so uh, so when did you see it for the first time i don't remember I have, like, no recollection of it. So I'm imagining it was probably sometime later in, like, high school or maybe when I went off to university. I probably just watched all of them because I'm thinking, like, I I would have watched it before I went to see Hannibal in theaters. Oh, I was 12 when that came out. Okay, well, we're not just talking about our age the entire <laughs> fucking episode, people. Nobody cares if we're 14 or 11. <laughs> Yeah, 
I definitely read the books when I was in high school too, but um, I yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, let's address the elephant in the room then. So, I mean, there's been a lot of, I mean, ever since the movie, I guess since it came out, there have been a lot of issues with transphobia, homophobia, whatever, queerphobia, whatever you want to call it, around this film, surrounding this film. And I say it's always been there, but I feel like it's really only in the past ooh, five-ish years that it's become like more prominently, like those opinions have been more prominently outspoken. Maybe I'm wrong. No, you're completely wrong, because we know that the film was picketed in 1992 at the Oscars. No, 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 no. I know that. I'm aware of that. I'm just saying, like, more like, well-known among the general populace. Does that, does that make any sense? It does. I just don't know where you're drawing that from. I don't know. I guess it's just me. <laughs> My own personal, like, experience with the film. I mean, I think you're... Maybe what you're drawing on is the fact that it's celebrated a couple of milestone anniversaries. So there were thing pieces that came out on the 25th anniversary, and then, of course, the 30th mm. just came. So we did get to see a lot more of those. Yeah, no, that's true. But Raina, I mean, as a transgender woman, how... I don't know. I feel like that's a, that's a big question, right? Like, what are your thoughts on The Silence of the Lambs? So my my thoughts on Silence of the Lambs are it's... That is a really loaded question now that I think about it. Holy shit. I know, shit. right? <laughs> um, well, just remember, you're speaking for yourself. You're not speaking on behalf of everybody. So it's just however you feel. Yeah, and I feel like that's important to disclose is that the the expressed view is of my own. I don't speak for a community or anything. As far as like the contents therein, I definitely think Silence of the Lambs is a book and movie of its time. It hasn't aged the best, but at the time, I don't think trans people were very visible. They use like incorrect terms and whatnot. So it's like we live in a day and age where we can be a little bit more open with who we are and be out. And so we're able to educate people on like, this is the proper term you would use. You do this, you don't do that. And the Silence of the Lambs plays out written from the perspective of somebody who didn't know like prop proper usage of terms or what trans people are whether i hate the film because of that no god no i think this movie's a masterpiece it's actually probably like probably in my top 20 films of all time if i had to be fully honest and to me it is okay to recognize those problematic elements but also praise it so I'll never be one of those people that be like, oh, Silence of the Lambs is horrible because it's got this problematic like depiction. It's like, that's what it was at the time. Like, that's how trans people were talked about and like treated at the time. Only now recently, like you said, within the last like five to 10 years, has it really been evolved into like a different type of conversation around trans people. I guess maybe a better way of phrasing what I was saying earlier is more like quote unquote regular folk, like not cinephiles, not horror junkies, not queer people specifically are willing to listen to the protests or mm -hmm. to, 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 to the ideas of that, that fueled the protest. Um, whereas I don't feel like a lot of, again, quote unquote, regular folk were willing to listen back in 1991. I mean, I'm thinking back to the way that my aunt presented it to my mom. And she was very much like, oh, this man is doing these things to women. And of course, when we read the film now, we either say, oh, well, Buffalo Bill is a trans woman, or, you know, they were not sure because they don't ever self identify themselves. Like we're not privy to their insight because they are just the villain of this piece. 
So I think that's part of how the conversation has shifted. Like at the time, it was very much, oh, this is a feminist film and it's terrifying because it's what men do to women. And now I think we can complicate and problematize, but also have more informed, interesting conversations about what is really happening in this film. Well, I think, yeah, because that's the thing too. As Rainer was saying, you know, it's, it's, this is a queer character, we are assuming, uh, written by a cisgender white man to cisgender white men if we want to take into account thomas harris's novel and ted talley's screenplay which i do think we should do yeah we absolutely should and if we're, if we're going into feminism then it's it's interesting because I, I there's plenty to discuss there but again if we're also reading bill as a transgender woman then it's feminist for cisgender women it's not feminist for all 100 oh, percent. yeah and it's like yeah almost like turfy vibes Oh, it is. And there were definitely some issues when people were writing their think pieces about how this film deserves to be celebrated for its feminist themes. And I, you know, much like Reina, what you said, I don't want to take away from that aspect of the film, because I do think it is strong in that regard. But I think you also have to recognize that by celebrating the feminism of this film, we also have to recognize the trans misogyny of it. And the problem is when people want to do one part of that work, but they don't want to address the other part because it's murky and uncomfortable. And ooh, all of a sudden my fave, this this film that is so critically lauded and has a sterling reputation, all of a sudden, ooh, shit, maybe there are some bad things in here. I think, and this is this is just me, like my, my viewpoint here is, I don't feel like there was any ill intent with any depictions of queerness in this film. I I mean, if you read Demi's quotes about Bill and the film in general and his reactions to the protest, it's clear that, I mean, he, it wasn't something that was thought through. And that for me, as a as a cisgender gay man, I confess, and I, I realize I'm stumbling here because I, I honestly do get a little, I'm going to say nervous discussing trans issues because it's, it's, it's not my lived experience. And so I feel almost um, ill-equipped to talk about it or uh, not in the right to talk about it. So I'm just kind of throwing those reservations out the window right now as I say this. But um, when it comes to things like that, yeah, I mean, for me, intent always matters, even though I've been trying to get better at looking at the impact of certain things. Because yes, the impact of this film on the trans community has been maybe not as good for the impact (laughs) that the film has had on cisgender women in the world. I don't think Jonathan Demme ever had a problem or like hated queer people. I just, because especially like two years later, he did Philadelphia. You mean the apology movie? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like he was just misinformed about a lot of things. And I do think you you said it well, Reyna, when you said that maybe this is obviously reflective of the time that it was made. And I think it's tough, right? Because particularly through a contemporary lens, we want to ask more of people. Like if you're going to include characters, whether that's race, whether that's gender, whether that's sexual orientation, we want people to put in the work to do good by the representation. And that doesn't mean that Bill can't be a villain, but mm-hmm. it also means that you you need to do that legwork a little bit more. And we just don't see that in Silence of the Lambs, right? This is not Bill's story. And as a result, Bill is nothing more than it's like literal transphobia just projected onto the screen because this has to be Clarice's rising. Have either one of y'all read the book? Yes. The only Thomas Harris novel I've read is Red Dragon. Oh, that's a good one, too, though. I mean, it's the first one, so it makes sense that you would start there. (laughs) I I, I was just like, 
it, oh, he ain't ever going to top this book, so I'm just going to reread it over and over. <laughs> Red Dragon has... Uh, Red Dragon scared me, whereas The Silence of the Lambs, I find... It, uh, they're both police procedurally, but like I found Silence of the Lambs more of like uh, engaging mystery, whereas I found Red Dragon truly haunting. Mm-hmm. Granted, though, it's it's been since high school since I've read The Silence of the Lambs. There are more passages with Bill devoted to his backstory, his childhood, and things like that, but... Obviously, you don't have that in this movie, because as Joe said, it's Clarice's story. If we're going to be adding flashbacks to Bill's childhood, it's going to add to the ar- the film's already two-hour runtime, mm-hmm. which they're not going to do. Well, I mean, and these were creative decisions that were made to say, okay, this white cisgender woman, maybe a lesbian, is more important than this <laughs> other character. Yeah, very true. B- boosting up uh, lesbians by jagging down the trans women. More or less. That's the unfortunate <laughs> narrative. Like when we look at this from a contemporary lens, it's like, yep, that's exactly what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like I'm missing like a good chunk of that context that you brought up, Chase, because I haven't read the novel. So I know Demi's intent. Mm. I don't know Harris's intent. Yeah, I mean, it's like I read this when I was 16 or 17, so I mean, I know those passages exist. I couldn't tell you what exactly it entails, because when I was that age, I wasn't reading that book with, oh, wh- what is this representation like of this character? So I'm sure if I reread it now, it'd be interesting. So listeners, by all means, by the way, if you have if you have this fresh on your mind, if you've read the book recently, I'm actually intrigued of what gaps it fills in in Bill's story, if any. I mean, Harris himself is not the most sensitive or delicate of writer he's i think particularly his more contemporary books have uh not landed him in hot water but he has drawn criticism for having certain priorities with particular kinds of characters and doing a bit of a shit job with others yeah that makes sense well okay that's actually a good segue then because i can just do a little bit of production history on this before we kind of get into the more meaty bits have at it and also (laughs) meaty bits yeah (laughs) I'm like hungry now. Fava bean hungry or like Dr. Chilton hungry? I almost think like a like a clay roast hungry. Okay. 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 Full disclosure. Okay. So I'm an adventurous eater and I'm not saying that I would eat a human being just because. But but if presented, you would. If presented in a country or a culture where it was legal and socially acceptable and it was on the menu of like leg of man, I would 100% try it. Yes. This is like the purge. This is how the purge begins. <laughs> I mean, Raw is one of my favorite films. So oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> It's one step from Rabbit, yeah. So, okay, Silence of the Lamb. So, as we discussed, it is written by Thomas Harris, who was a journalist in the 1970s. He had written a thriller called Black Sunday in 75 before writing Red Dragon in 1981. Red Dragon would, of course, go on to be adapted into Michael Mann's Manhunter in 86, which was a huge flop, and then again as Red Dragon with Anthony Hopkins in 2002. Preferred version on either one of those, by the way? Manhunter. Manhunter. Because <laughs> you're going to say Red Dragon, aren't you? I, okay, so. Uh, oh, no. Are no, no, you no. really? I am. But but here's, here's the thing. I only just saw Manhunter for the first time, like, in the past year. And I, I don't think I fully appreciated it. It might be one that I need to rewatch to really appreciate. Because it was, it was, I, I'm pulling a Joe here. It was not what I expected. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is that if you've seen Red Dragon, you're expecting a Hollywood sensational, bombastic kind of film. And Manhunter is moody and atmospheric. I don't even want to say Hollywoody bombastic. I just want to say more standard. Like, yeah, you're right. It's a studio film. 
Yes. I, I was. I, yes, exactly. I mean, it's Brett Ratner. Yes. And Manhunter is. is not. Manhunter is a very, like, I don't think I was expecting all the colors and William Peterson's quote unquote acting. Mm. Hey, he's a little sleepy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I went in with the context that Michael Mann was coming hot off of Miami Vice, so... Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, our journeys are so great. (sighs) So, here we have our first bit of interesting information. So, Harris wanted to challenge himself for his next book after Red Dragon, and that challenge was putting himself in the mind of a female character, which is how we got The Silence of the Lambs in May of 1988. So... While, again, I'm not going to make any arguments that Thomas Harris is queer or, like, dabbling in trans issues in some way, I just find that interesting that it's like, oh, it's a man wanting to put himself in the mind of a woman, which is how we got one of the most successful books slash films ever made. The novel did not become a hit until it hit paperback at the end of that year, at which point Orion Pictures bought the rights for $500,000, $250,000 of which, so half of it, was paid by Gene Hackman. Because he wanted to direct and possibly star in the film. Now, here's my kind of like, what the fuck? So at this point, the film didn't have a screenplay. So Hackman hired Ted Talley after liking his film Red Palace. Talley turned in the screenplay. Hackman goes, oh, that's too violent and walked away. (laughs) <laughs> it seems what? like a good use of funds well but right okay so hackman presumably read the novel right Dude, he read the synopsis <laughs> he read the back of the paperback <laughs> yeah he was in the airport he was on his way to catch a, a long flight and he thought oh this sounds interesting oh wow the back sounds really good i should option these rights yeah he calls his agent he's like you're not gonna believe what i read on the back of a paperback in the bookstore <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, he was out, which I mean, for the better, could you imagine Gene Hackman playing either Jack Crawford or Hannibal Lecter? Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, maybe. Gene Hackman was a very different actor in those days, but still, it's it's hard to get who ended up in these roles out of her mind. Like, they are fixed in that sense. Well, I have more for you then. So, okay, first... This brought Orion to Jonathan Demme, who was an up-and-coming director after 1986's Something Wild, which is a screwball comedy with Melanie Griffith, and 1988's Married to the Mob with Michelle Pfeiffer. Both of these were critical darlings, and he was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. Although there were some issues with, um, like, Jodie Foster thinking that he was giving, like, black comedy elements to the film, and she, like, apparently pulled him aside one day, and he showed her dailies, and then it, like, appeased her, basically. Thomas Harris declined to be involved in the production of the film, simply wishing the cast and crew good luck before piecing the fuck out with his paycheck. <laughs> I mean, you do you, I guess. <laughs> you see, he he pulled a carpenter. He's like, I don't care what you do as long as I get paid. <laughs> Pretty much. Which, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like I, I'm not really a creator in that sense, but I'm trying to think if I would be very sacred about my property if they were getting adapted, you know? So... so being like a former aspiring scriptwriter, I learned quickly that your ideas are not your own. Mm-hmm. If you thought of something, somebody else has probably thought of it. So, especially yeah. once you've sold the rights, right? Like you can probably mm-hmm. ask to be involved, or you could probably try to fit that into some kind of writer. But I imagine a lot of people say, "Okay, thanks for your work. Now it's our turn to interpret this material." 
Exactly. I mean, I, just, I guess it depends on the deal, right? Because I mean, I, there are very few examples of the 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 book's author writing the screenplay for the film adaptation. They exist, like even on this show. Like I'm going back to the ruins, in which that author was just like, "Hey, I'm going to keep everything the same. I'm just going to change the fates of the characters to like, of what happens to who." <laughs> so I don't know, but then you get more experimental sometimes. Um, nothing springy to mind, but I know it exists. You get Demi doing uh, Silence of the Lambs. There you go. So yeah, uh, Demi brings in his production designer from Married to the Mob, whose name was Christy Zay. I only bring her up because she refused to do this film because of the violence. She only agreed to participate because Demi convinced her that it was, in fact, a feminist piece. And so she was very much out of her comfort zone doing this film, um, especially with the uh, FBI offices and how cramped and ugly it was. And just the subject matter in general made her very uncomfortable. See, even that tells me what kind of a different world we're dealing with back in 90, 91. You know, people talking about, oh, I'm uncomfortable with the violence. And sure, this film has violence in it, but we are miles away from the slashers of the 80s, right? Where the violence at the gore was off the chain during that decade. But I think we're also talking about a different, oh, God, I'm going to say it. I think we're dealing with a different level of prestige here, right? These are people who would never dabble in horror. Well, okay. So normally I would say yes. Um, I The thing is that this was never, like when they were making this, they weren't thinking, oh, we're making a prestige film. We're making an Oscar film. Like that was, it was just, we're adapting this really good thriller book. And that's important too, because apparently producers got really nervous when people described it as a horror film. They, mm-hmm. of course, were, and that's the endless debate, which I don't want to get into, but they were very much like, oh, it's a film that has elements of a police procedural, some elements of gothic horror, and some elements of psychological thriller. <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think what turned people off of this movie was not the violence per se, but I think nobody wanted to say the, the queer violence because I can't, I can't really think of anything made around the same time that like touched upon like certain themes like this one does. Yeah, I mean, at least with the backlash it got to, the closest thing is cruising. And how it handles queer folks in that film and obviously violence against queer folks. But that was, what, 10 years before? Yeah, and look at the reception and flack that got. Oh, yeah. I just find it fascinating because this is also... Well, I don't want to say that this movie is more refined, but we're also only a year away from Basic Instinct. And that film is far more lurid and sensational. And it gets the same kind of troubled reception from queer audiences i guess maybe the difference there being though that your queer character is the ostensible protagonist of the film as opposed to a secondary character i mean i think michael douglas is still the main character yeah no no absolutely but like i mean i feel like Catherine chamel is more of a maybe co-lead is too much of a state of a a title but like more of a co-lead than jamie gum is right i just find it fascinating because it's like i I always peg Hannibal Lecter as a big old mo, but I don't think everyone else does. So basic instinct is a giant blind spot for me. Oh, really? You should check it out. It's very queer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm literally adding it to my Letterboxd watch list like right now. It's basically like you have a female who's bi- two, two female characters. Well, no, one who's for sure bisexual, one who is either a lesbian or bisexual um, as like main characters in the film. Okay, yeah, I'm for sure watching that then now that <laughs> I think about it. Big recommend. Check out Basic Instinct 2 if you want to be put to sleep. Oh yeah, that one's terrible. I already got my melatonin. There you go. So yeah, I, I don't have a bunch of news about casting 
thing because I don't really care. But I did want to point out that Jodie Foster was campaigning for the role of Clarice before the script was even turned in. Like she, I think she went to go look for buying the rights or find someone to buy the rights for her. And by that point, Gene Hackman and Orion had already done it. When it got to Demi, he wanted Michelle Pfeiffer to be Clary Starling because he loved working with her on Married to the Mob, but she turned it down because, guess why? It was too violent. (laughs) (laughs) So, Orion gives this movie a budget of $20 million. Demi, uh, just for filming style, you know, I mean, just for the care that went into making this film, uh, they didn't use real crime scene photos for their wall. They actually looked at real crime scene photos and recreated them with actors and, um, like, actual, like, makeup effects and things so again i don't even think we get a lot of close-ups of those photos in this film but just when they're on the wall in the fbi headquarters like that's all just staged photos based on real photos and so yeah this film it was supposed to come out in the fall of 1990 but Orion bumped it to February of 91 to make room for Dances with Wolves, which they thought was a better Oscar contender. (laughs) I mean, they're not wrong because it worked out for them. Yeah, it did. Basically, 91 and 92's Oscars were dominated by Orion Pictures. Little did they know. (laughs) Yeah, and then they disappeared and came back with Child's Play. (laughs) And and, uh, The Prodigy. And uh, Wolf of Snow Hollow. Stop it with The Prodigy, Trace. So, yes, The Silence of the Lambs was released on February 14th, Valentine's Day, 1991, grossing almost $14 million from uh, about 1,500 theaters over the four-day President's Day weekend, which I think generally is a slow weekend at the box office. It remained at number one for five weeks, eventually grossing $131 million in the U.S. and Canada with a total worldwide gross of $273 million, making it the fifth highest grossing film of 1991. And uh, obviously it was critically acclaimed. We're looking at a 96% of Rotten Tomatoes and an average score of 8.9 out of 10, which Joe might be the best reviewed film we've covered on this podcast i think it's up there with the handmaiden and rebecca there you go Ooh, i feel honored to be on this episode if it's the highest rated film (laughs) it might be we'll have to go check those rebecca and handmaiden reviews uh i just don't think we've had anything that crossed into like nine point something territory but maybe i'm wrong So yes, this film does win the Big Five Academy Awards in 1992, and that's another thing that's important too. They bumped this to February, which is basically means, like, this film wouldn't have been eligible for that year's Oscars. It would have been eligible for the Oscars taking place over a year later, which is why a lot of Oscar Mm -hmm. films come out in December. And so clearly Orion was like, all right, that's a good movie, but like, we got to get Dances with Wolves up there. So I think if they really wanted to, like, if they were really thinking this was an Oscar film, they would have pushed it like a year to like the next fall but it does win best picture best director for demi best actor for anthony hopkins best actress for jodie foster and best adapted screenplay for ted talley making it only the third film in history to accomplish that feat Um, it was nominated for best sound but lost to terminator 2 and it was also nominated for best film editing but lost to jfk can't talk about JFK, but Terminator maybe did have an edge out on the sound. It's it was like what happened with Mad Max Fury Road, right? Like they like kind of just put this movie out early in the year because they didn't think it'd be an awards movie, and then it just like sweeps. In Mad Max's case, I mean, like I would have loved for Mad Max to win more of like the like in front of the camera, like the acting and directing awards. Like George Miller should have won that directing Oscar. Oh my god, yes. But but it, yeah, it swept all the technical awards, right? Yeah. It won a lot, yeah, now that I think about it. Yeah, I think it won like six or seven. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a big Oscar movie. (laughs) 
But yeah, so I won all those. But as we mentioned earlier, like this film had a lot of heavy protests against it for its treatment of, well, its queer character, Buffalo Bill. Apparently a lot of flat came down on Foster herself because even though she wasn't out at the time, it was very much a, you're a queer person. You should know better than this. Why are you in this movie type of thing? Yeah, one of Hollywood's badly kept secrets. But of course, I think for quote unquote normies who may be weren't involved in the industry or weren't paying attention to Hollywood gossip. I don't know how well known her lesbianism was. Like she doesn't come out of the closet for God, it's gotta be what, another decade after that? Two thousand seven. Yeah, it was like she she did it at an award ceremony. And then like didn't talk about it again until like twenty thirteen. I mean she is a notoriously private person, so I guess in thinking about the protest particularly, I can't imagine that she would say, oh shit, like I'm in one of the most heralded film performances of my career, but also I'm a very private person who doesn't necessarily want to talk about my sexuality in the media. I mean, I think nowadays we would say, oh, well, you also have a responsibility as a queer person to address the complaints against your film. But again, 1991. So, yeah, and I have a little bit on that. So, yeah, her her sexual orientation became the subject of discussion in, like, the, the first time in 1991 when these protests were happening. And But the thing is, again, these are outlets like Outweek and Village Voice were saying, like, publicizing, oh, she's a closeted lesbian. So, again, mm. it's a trickier road for me because, I mean, I, I understand where, where people are coming from, but it's also like, okay, but you're also, like, publicly outing yeah. uh, a, a woman. And Raina, you were right. Uh, she admitted in 2007 in um, in a Hollywood Reporter article that she was in a relationship with a woman or had been in a relationship with a woman for 14 years. But she didn't public address it beyond that until 2013 when she won the Cecil B. DeMille Award at the Golden Globes. Yeah, my parents like didn't know. And like I look back on like Jodie Foster's movies and I'm like, y'all didn't think anything? Question mark. Hindsight, that 2020 queer vision, right? I think my dad even told me. I mean, he 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 used some not nice words to like describe oh, describe no. her, but um, but yes, he, I, my 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 parents definitely knew. I mean, hmm. my my parents didn't care. They were just like, oh yeah, just never really thought about it, which is kind of nice, I guess. And in, in, in retrospect, right? It's, it's pretty nice. <laughs> okay, well, do we want to then go into like some set pieces and stuff? Okay, yeah. So rather than go through the plot step by step, we figured that we might do some highlights because we can probably cover more ground in that way. So why don't we begin with that first interaction between Lecter and Clarice when they meet each other in the prison? Well. This is like the beating heart of the film, right? Every interaction between Lecter and Clarice. Yes, absolutely. Good lord, that's a good scene. So I I just watched this like an hour before we recorded, just so it was fresh in my mind. And I really love the dialogue and banter between Clarice and Dr. Lecter. I think it's like probably some of the most expertly written like sc- examples of screenwriting that I've seen. It really helps to the because uh, Demi keeps the camera in such focus on mm-hmm. on both of their faces, which apparently was something that Hopkins was um not very patient with, but Jodie Foster was, um, mm-hmm. because they can't move. Like, their face is basically in an invisible, like, lock for this entire, for a lot of these scenes, and it just becomes, but that kind of makes it more personable, I guess, as the viewer. Yeah, I feel like this is the scene where it, like, fully establishes that we are going to get into the psyche of these two characters. I think I always forget how quickly this film starts. 
And I think it has something to do with how the case itself, like, we're not introduced to this case in the beginning of it. Like, it's it's essentially in media res. Like, we're thrown into the middle of the case with Starling, who is, of course, the audience surrogate here. And it's like, what, five minutes in and we're having this this first confrontation between her and Lecter? If it's not that, it's very early on. Because, yeah, she did, you know, we're introduced to her doing her usual FBI run slash performance. And then she's meeting with Crawford. And then, yeah, she's on her way. That's probably what stands out to this because rather than like you know standard police procedural it's like oh you get to know the officer and then the officer like learns of the case this one it's like nope already in the thick of it you you'll learn as you go just kind of like kind of like she does throughout the case yeah that is very true because i mean we're using the information from this q a that they have and and really it persists throughout their their scenes together but even the title of the film doesn't come into focus until what he gets transferred over to Memphis. And that's when the silence of the lambs actually becomes the plot point about unlocking who Clarice is. That's um, that's high art cinema. Oh my God. <laughs> I got, I got my pinkies up while talking about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they could have just called it Clarice. Oh my God. Like the CBS show. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Are you caught up on that show, Reina? I stopped after like episode three. Okay. Not because I dislike it, which I do, but mm-hmm. because, you know, I find it so it's hard. It's fucking that boring. Way. Yeah. And when you're writing and talking about movies, like, for like a living you're just kind of like ah, my time can be better spent elsewhere oh yes yeah 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 i mean that's the thing like i mean i don't want to get too off course but with that show it's very much just a typical police procedural with this you know silence of the lambs coding on it the procedural is the is first and foremost the element in play here whereas the clarice it, it could have been anything else without the name brand without the ip but they they chose to use the ip yeah i find it strange that like i get they use the ip and the character of clarice it's like okay like but did you really need to go back to the silence of the lambs well especially if like i know you ain't gonna pull it off like you did the did the movie (laughs) no yeah and of course they they can't literally because they can't mention or show Lecter because they don't have the rights to him which is a a problem that persists throughout the entire franchise right it's why we get certain characters and certain iterations it plagued brian fuller's hannibal production as well so uh, that's why we never got a clarice character in the four seasons i think it's doable there and granted i walked into clarice with open mind with an open mind because i was like well you can you can make this work like just again you make it Mm -hmm. about clarice the problem is what clarice as a show is doing it's so inherently tied to silence of the lambs because it's like oh it's a year later also the uh, catherine martin is a protagonist in the show Mm -hmm. so it's like you have all these things that are like okay we're just doing silence of the lambs 2 right now but you can't mention hannibal lecter's name (laughs) And I think for a lot of people, Silence of the Lambs ultimately does come down to the Clarice and Lecter relationship. Like, there's a lot of other components at work here. You know, there's the feminism treatment of how Jack Crawford uses her. There's the more mundane police procedural elements. But when people think of Silence of the Lambs, they think of the scenes between these two characters. Let's not forget this, too. But I feel like a lot of the time, a lot of people see Silence of the Lambs as untouchable. It's like one of those few movies out there that it's like, oh, don't ever dare to remake this. Right. (laughs) And yet they keep sort of trying. Yeah, which I feel like I love 
what Brian Fuller said about his concept for season four, how it was going to adapt Silence of the Lambs and Elliot Page was going to play Clarice. Oh my God. Yeah, that would have been awesome. But I feel like even from like certain people that would have gotten shit. Oh, 100%. The thing is, and the reason I walked into Clarice with a very open mind is because I remember when that Hannibal series was announced and people were like, it's on NBC, fuck this shit. Like, it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. if it's Brian Fuller. People know Brian Fuller, people trusted Brian Fuller, but no one was walking into Hannibal thinking, oh, this is going to be good. It was a surprise when it was good, but I think that issue is why it always had, had struggled in the ratings outside of Fuller's let's say maybe abstract approach to the material. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, because people didn't want to give it the chance. So when people, the few people did, and they were like, holy fuck y'all, it's amazing. It took too long for people to get into it. So right. to wrap around back to that question, when you're like, oh, do you have a preference between Manhunter and Red Dragon? Mm-hmm. I'm going to go out on a limb and say the Hannibal TV series is my oh, favorite that... adaptation oh, of Red yeah. Dragon. Yeah. That's uh-huh. easily the correct answer. Yes. <laughs> oh, by by a mile. Like I what? love Manhunter, but like the TV series adapted that source material the best, which is why I was super interested to see what they would have done with Silence yes. of the Lambs. Right. Well, and that's the thing. I think by I mean again, it's like we're so off of the movie, but like the the thing with that show is like it it had established such like um like a trust with the audience where it's like I don't know what you're going to do to like tweak this material. But I trust you anyway. Like, I'll watch, I would have watched anything that they had done with Silence of the Lambs. Like, because by that point, it's like, you're not expecting a straightforward adaptation. You know Fuller's going to do something that's unexpected, like he did with Hannibal. Again, he even adapted Hannibal pretty well. (laughs) He did. And he gave a, a fair shot at Hannibal Rising. Yeah, he did. And, and, and he does it in like queer friendly ways. That, like, the mind just races. I'm like, oh, man, if he did silence, oh, that would have been, like, peak, I think. Well, and I yeah, I, I think that's the key there, too, right? Like, we, when you have mm-hmm. a queer creator taking queer-coded material like this, Hannibal Lecter is queer-coded for a lot, um, and then you have a queer character in Bill, I do wonder, yeah, what would that have looked like to see a Hannibalized bill we'll never know, but <laughs> there we go. I, d- I do want to give, like, a fair, like fair like points or like like props to Clarice though for casting Jen Richards as a character on the show I, I mean they're trying I gotta give them that I think that's admirable I, I I I don't even think the critiques for that show have come down to oh it's mishandling representation even because yeah like like bringing in a trans actress to a story that's inherently transphobic uh, yeah, that's a good move. The problem is you have to make everything else good. Well, yeah. and I think you're you're starting from a point of deficiency because you cannot get away from Silence of the Lambs. Like, it, I mean, for me, the biggest takeaway from covering this film for the podcast is the legacy and or the shadow, depending on how you feel about this film, it has cast over the last 30 years. Like, if, if you want to talk about characters from... You know, like we talk about Jodie Foster's accent and we have all sorts of regional connotations about, oh, people and coal miners and, you know, sheep fuckers and that kind of stuff. You've got Lecter as an erudite gay that we praise him for his fashion sense and 
for his culinary habits and we make jokes about fava beans because this character has persisted like this film is a juggernaut in terms of the cultural consciousness so when people try to turn it into a cbs procedural they're starting from a bad place so um what is not a procedural well no this is a procedural but we're (laughs) back in the movie any other thoughts on these uh clarice and lecter scenes i mean they're amazing yeah they hold up a thousand percent i had watched this movie recently actually and so i i I had it on today while i was working so i was kind of like up and down looking but like it never fails for those scenes to like make you make me look up and like eyes glued to the screen Mm -hmm. there's something about the way i think it's not just the way that demi shoots them with that intimacy but also the way the two actors play off each other's responses there's like a a vibrancy in the performance and i do want to give a shout out to the production design because obviously the makeup of these cells and you know the the positioning of the holes and the clear plexiglass and all that kind of stuff like it's a very creative way to make sure that we're not obstructed from ever seeing either of these two characters and that's all that's all we have to say about that i i just need to also like state like before like we move on it's like i i miss jonathan demi so much was the last movie he did ricky and the flash i think that was the last thing he did before it was died. which i had yeah. yeah which i had just seen for the first time recently i don't have a close relationship with him like every time he comes up i i find i confuse his filmography with fincher honestly i feel like silence of the lambs is a bit of an outlier for him in terms of the types of films he did most often right yeah because like his most famous besides this are like philadelphia and I would say Rachel getting married. Yeah, Rachel getting married. I'm, I, may, maybe, maybe that Manchurian Candidate remake as well. Ooh, oh, I do not sh- care for that one. Oh, shit, that's, fine. that's him. I forgot about that. I might need to revisit that. <laughs> yeah, and arguably Married to the Mob, which I've never seen, but like I think that was, again, one of his first big ones. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a good one. Uh, okay, so thinking about the relationship that Demi has with females, because so much of his filmography is based around that, and obviously he was intrigued by that. What do we think of the feminist messaging of this film, and particularly the way that Starling is treated by her male co-workers? I mean, I think the framing of it's great. Like, we constantly, like, he constantly frames Starling and Foster as so small because she is a small person. But it's like, I mean, Joe, you've said to me before, one of your favorite shots is the elevator shot. Oh, my God, I fucking love that elevator shot. (laughs) (laughs) It shows up on one perfect shot every once in a while. And I'm just like, yes, let me hit that heart button. Fujimoto working, working his magic. Oh, yeah. Mm hmm. Because I I just think it really synthesizes everything that this film is trying to do about who the character is, right? And I think it's why women in particular latch onto it, because women watch this and they feel the way that Starling is shot. And all of these men tower over her, they talk over her, they dismiss her. But at the end of the day, she's the smartest fucking person in the room. And I think a lot of women feel that way when they're surrounded by men. Well, also, because I think the reason one of the reasons the FBI was so willing to let the production crew come in and like look at stuff is because they were also hoping to use this film as publicity to get more female applicants into their program. I mean, clearly they want white women because Bedelia doesn't get shit to do in this movie. Ardelia. Ardelia. Not Bedelia Bed- is. Oh, I'm just. I'm not. <laughs> Amelia just thinking Bedelia. Of Anderson. No, I'm thinking of Jillian Anderson because her character is Bedelia. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Um, yeah, no, Ardelia gets jack shit to do in this movie, and that, I mean, it, w- again, we'll get to Bill in a little bit because I I want to address Lecter's. I'm gonna say psychological profile of him. Uh, them. 
how do we want to gender bill? Whenever I'm unsure until I get confirmation. It's which, they. Which, yeah, which the movie never does. I, I go with they. Okay. okay. Um, but yeah, I, I really want to get into Lecter's profile of Bill because I think that's something that's also also definitely worth mentioning. All right. Any any other thoughts then about the feminism stuff or shall we move on to Bill? I have nothing to add to it, but uh, I will say I do love like the feminist angle of this movie like so much, so much so that like, once again, I'm angry that I didn't get to see Elliot Page's portrayal of this character. Oh, God, why would you even do that to me, Reina? Now all I'm doing is thinking about that. Yeah, right? Maybe a slight diversion, but I mean, thoughts on Julianne Moore's portrayal? Um, oh, God, I forgot about that. <laughs> can, can we take a pass on this one? Yeah, I, you can pass on I it. fucking love Julianne Moore, but no. Yeah, no. <laughs> okay, that's fair. <laughs> I mean, Hannibal is one of those movies where you just think, oh, there's there's just a lot of ill-conceived ideas going on in this film. And sadly, it's it's not hard to understand why people who love Silence of the Lambs fucking hate Hannibal because of what it does to her. But you can also blame that on Harris because he does the exact same shit in the book and worse. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, granted, I'm of the mindset that I would have actually liked to have seen Hannibal and Clarice run off together at the end like they do in the book. But that's only because it's so fucking stupid that I'm like, I have to see that. Wait, wait, what? What? So in so in the book, she gets like Stockholm syndrome because she gets brainwashed by Hannibal and then they fall in love and run away to Rome. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. After <laughs> eating Crawford's brain. Which no, is, no, of no, 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 Crindler's brain. Crawford's, Crindler. uh, yeah, it's Crindler. Cr- Crindler's the asshole. I, what the, f- yeah. What the f- I, I need <laughs> to read this book. It, it's like 700 pages long. It is the longest book ever. Not really, but like, it's really long. <laughs> okay, oh, but, but also, Raina, there's, there's really shitty stuff about, um, like, lesbianism in that book, because yeah. Harris... Because Mason Verger, who you would have met in the Hannibal TV series, um, he has his sister, who is, of course, played by the wonderful Catherine Isabel. So in the book version, she is a bodybuilding woman. And people will have heard us talk about this on our Cell episode because there's like a jacked female bodybuilder in that. And the idea is that she is compensating for her lesbian desires by building up this massive muscle mass and doing horrible things to children yeah so once again it sounds like brian fuller uh once again uh improved improved oh, that. 100%. <laughs> well, yeah. and actually though even thinking on that though because again that's thomas harris doing that i mean it, it's what 12 years after he wrote silence of the lambs well i guess he wrote silence of the course of a couple years but still i think it's harder to argue oh there was no bad intent with this one in hannibal <laughs> But it's also like, maybe he just didn't get it. Maybe he just was totally clueless. I think he was like, well, what scares people? Queer people. Queer people are scary to normal people. Okay, well, then the intent is there. That's bad intent. (laughs) I just, he keeps going back to the fucking well. Yeah. In this case, literally. (laughs) That's what it sounds like. Very surprised that Brian Fuller uh, got his hands on that material well i almost wonder if brian filler took it as a challenge like i see you and as a gay man i'm gonna subvert all of this bullshit and all of this wrongdoing that you have done in these books and i'm gonna make this as queer as i can possibly make it yeah Mm -hmm. okay so let's talk about bill 
shall we? Oof. <laughs> okay, well, first of all, just some facts out of the way. So first of all, um, Bill is a combination... I'm sorry, Bill. Um, Jamie is a combination of three serial killers. One is Ed Gein, who dug up dra- the graves of elderly women after his mother died, um, put them in a pig shed and strung them up. He would make lampshades made of skin and was into transvesticism. Ted Bundy, he would wear a phony cast on his arm, wait outside of the library for his preferential victims and, uh, you know, strike her in the head with his cast. So we see that, of course, in the Catherine Martin abduction. And he was third. The third part of him is Gary Heidnick. Um, His victims met their deaths in the basement of his house, a five foot deep pit. He put as many as three women in the pit and fill it with water. They would be shackled with metal clamps on ankles and wrists, and he tortured them by shocking them with an electric wire. So I've got a couple quotes. Um, I, I think I'm going to start with Lecter's quote on gum because I think that's probably the biggest, con- like the most contentious point of this film when it comes to critics. And this is the quote. So we have a bit where um, Clary says, you know, oh, like transsexuals aren't by nature violent and blah, blah, blah. And this is when Lecter retorts, well, Billy is not a real transsexual, but he thinks he is. He tries to be. He ch- He's tried to be a lot of things, I expect. There are three major centers for transsexual surgery. Johns Hopkins, the University of Minnesota, and Columbus Medical Center. I wouldn't be surprised if Billy had applied for sex reassignment at one or all of them and been rejected. On what basis would they reject him, Clarice replies, and he says, Look for severe childhood disturbances associated with violence. Our Billy wasn't born a criminal, Clarice. He was made one through years of systematic abuse. Billy hates his own identity, you see, and he thinks that makes him a transsexual. But his pathology is a thousand times more savage and more terrifying. (sighs) There's like one part of that that is actually accurate, where it says, oh, he was made into this because of his treatment. But the rest of it sounds like a load of bullshit. It's loaded. Part of my therapy before I had transitioned did dive into like, oh, are you actually trans or are you wanting to transition just because you hate your current self? Jesus. Yeah. We, we got intense with my therapy sessions and the way the film frames it is like not accurate at all. Like it, it, once again, product of its time, very ill-informed takes. This movie is full of them, obviously. Um, But I, I, I find this conversation like so wordly. I mean, like not worded weirdly. Like it feels like somebody looked at like a textbook and just kind of like mixed up this bunch of jargon together that doesn't go together. Because we're coming, I mean, we're still in a time, even in 2021, but like, especially in this in 1990, where it's like, oh, gender dysphoria or like, being trans is a mental illness, you know, it's nothing else. And so the thing that I'm finding here is that it's like, oh, it's other people telling Bill what they are instead of any kind of, I mean, because from what we hear from Lecter, Bill does want reassignment surgery. Uh, They do believe that they are a woman. They have tried multiple times to get the surgery mm-hmm. and they've been rejected by a system that tells them, no, you're too mentally ill to make that decision for yourself. And, and that's where it kind of comes off of like with its implications of like, Oh, well, Bill is not allowed to have gender reassignment surgery. So that's now why they're like this, like crazed, like serial killer. Yes. It's like a catch 22 almost. Mm-hmm. 
And of course, I do think it's important to note, and I'm guilty of this the first time that I saw the film, I took this statement at face As value. Gospel. Yes. Yeah, despite the fact that we're talking about a person who eats their own subjects, but because Dr. Lecter is a doctor, we trust that his diagnosis is accurate. And of course, even though doctors have been around forever, it doesn't also mean that medicine and and the way that we approach medicine hasn't changed, right? So there's this history, particularly when you're dealing with transitioning and the way that you approach it. Like it's inherently, I don't want to say transphobic, but there's a lot of issues where it's like, oh, if people had mental health issues or trauma or they can't pass convincingly, then those are all reasons not to allow them to be who they fucking are. And that has only started to change recently so that's entirely how i feel about it too like i always like especially like uh coming into my own i like take this scene as like oh well this is why bill is a serial killer because the system failed them and they can't become a woman so they're just taking their rage out and doing it themselves yeah i don't want to assume what Fuller would have done, but it would have been interesting to have seen a version of the story where we actually get to see more from this character's perspective. Because as queer people, we like to talk about things like queer rage and how we would side with someone who would commit homicide because they have been oppressed by the system. You know, we talk about it a lot in things like rape revenge films. And I I would almost be open to a story from Bill's perspective where they just go on a fucking rampage of all these doctors who told them, no, you're not allowed to be who you are. So I always feel like that if Fuller had gone forward with it, I always held this like theory in my head of like, oh, well, Bill would have been a post-op trans woman. Would that have been terrible? Like, less offensive? <laughs> <laughs> like I, I feel like it would have been like the the queer rage thing of like, oh well, mm-hmm. I'm a woman now. Time to get back at everyone that tried to like stop me. I mean right. that that's going into in any debate of like, okay, well, when you have the queer monster, you know, like, is it always offensive? Is it always problematic? Mm-hmm. And the, the fact of the matter is, I mean, as as much as people would like it to be a black and white scenario, it's unfortunately not the case. And I think when, in any of these scenarios, like let's say Fuller did that, there will be people that would be like, okay, cool, I'm fine with this. But then there would also be people that are like, no, I'm still fucking offended by this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like. I mean, I'm a trans woman, and like one of my favorite movies besides this is Just to Kill. Oh um, wow! Okay. Oh, yeah. you're gonna have a lot of fun with Basic Instinct. <laughs> okay. Yes. Okay. Indeed. I'm, I'm excited for Basic Instinct, <laughs> but um, I like to think that people inherently don't have the best, like, don't have the worst intentions. Right. No, I'm the uh, same way. I think a lot of it is just being ill-informed about stuff. Whether Fuller's depiction of Bill what it got in flack especially for my idea of bill i I just i just don't think it's like one of those things we'll ever have an answer to right i do want to give a little bit of history um specifically because because Lecter does reference johns hopkins uh, just kind of what the status of sex reassignment or gender reassignment surgery was at the time this is actually a piece written by harmony colangelo uh wife of former guest bj colangelo called 30 years in the silence of the lambs jame gum still deserves better and this is written for the ab club but Johns Hopkins ceased gender-affirming care in 1979. By 1966, Johns Hopkins had spearheaded gender-affirming treatment and proudly touted itself as the home of the nation's first, quote-unquote, change-of-sex operations, as they were known at the time. 
That all ended with a study conducted by Dr. John K. Myers, head of the hospital's sexual behavior consultation unit. Using his position, Myers judged applicants for treatment on their quality of life based on social assimilation, employment, and income status. Ugh stability of residency any legal or psychological difficulties and marital status i'm sorry i'm trying like i'm i'm sorry although there is no written proof of it due to discrimination word of mouth by trans people through the years illustrates that patients were also denied based on their looks or ability to pass in the window of time between first being assessed for gender affirming surgery and shortly after the operation Meyer said he found no significant improvement in any of these criteria he asked patients if they were living in a new personal utopia while they were still sore and recovering. <laughs> oh my god. And he used this information to conclude that gender dysphoria was a problem that should be treated psychologically rather than physically via hormone replacement therapy or surgery. The study was criticized by Myers' medical peers for the small sample size, his interpretation of the information, and, a, and that a similar study with a larger number of patients over a wider period of time showed universally more positive improvements. However, this was enough to give Dr. Paul McHugh, Johns Hopkins' chief of psychiatry from 1975 to 2001, the ammunition to shutter all trans-related care two months after the study's publication, asserting that continuing treatment in light of this evidence was facilitating mental illness. To this day, McHugh continues to echo this stance within conservative circles, when he, where he is often quoted in anti-gender discussions. With such a conclusive ruling from an esteemed institution like Johns Hopkins, most hospitals across the country ceased providing similar trans healthcare within the following decade. Transsexualism would get reclassified as a mental disorder in 1980, in the third version of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and it stayed that way until 2013. Jesus. In the same scene in Silence of the Lambs, Dr. Lecter claims that Billy only thinks they are trans, again in quotes, a bullshit concept referred to as trans-trender these days, as if it is just the latest in a long line of fads they hope will remedy their self-disdain. But comparing the film to real-world events that Lecter is referencing would show that Jamie Gum was attempting to transition for at least a decade before becoming Buffalo Bill. Since candidates for treatment were accepted at individual doctors' discretion based on their mental well-being, financial status or even physical attractiveness jamie likely would have been rejected not for lack of being trans but because of the trauma and fiscal failings of their upbringing so again the system because it's almost like they ran a study where the outcome was predetermined because people weren't living in a fucking utopia like you could apply that to cosmetic surgery as a general basis like hey lady in bel-air are you living in a utopia because you got your nose job? No. Well, I guess we should shutter all cosmetic surgery across North America. Like, what mm -hmm. the fuck? That is yeah. the stupidest rationale. I, I look out my window and it's a dystopia. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, it, it, it's even saying, you know, like, oh, it's like right after the operation when they're still recovering. Do you feel great? Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually still recovering from surgery, you motherfucker. I would have woken up. They would have been like, do you feel like you're in utopia? And I'm like, no, Twitter still exists. Put me under. <laughs> <laughs> put me in cryo freezing yeah yeah it's wow that's that's a really fucking good piece by the way that's actually oh yeah uh, yeah i love that piece so good uh props to av for running that it's always something too like with with any article that delves with transgender issues be it like on the av club or especially even like bloody disgusting like alice collins does really good uh trap by gender column for bloody that mm. looks into uh horror films via trans lenses and but Again, it's like, don't read the comments because oh people are going to get fucking awful. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think 
One of the reasons, maybe, either of you can debate me on this, I feel like one of the reasons that things like Silence of the Lambs still resonates but also causes so much disruption is because I think uh, trans rights are now kind of like the strangely enough the kind of last bastion for a lot of people like they've lost the gay marriage debate we've seen significant advances in healthcare treatments at that you know admittedly continue to get walked back but right. it often seems to focus like oh well the new battle is on the trans front because they're so terrifying like they're the the scariest of the queers that conservatives have left to fight so things like silence of the lambs get trotted back out every fucking time like if there's a bathroom debate well we need to bring buffalo bill back into the equation yeah i can only speak from like personal experience but i have had like pretty hard struggles fitting into like queer spaces because people have that resistance to trans people like you said it's like that last bastion to like keep something quote-unquote pure Mm -hmm. and then once you involve trans and non-binary people it starts to get like muddled in their eyes so within the queer community as well so this isn't just like outside the queer community oh Mm -hmm. it's a lot of gay men too as shitty as it is to say that like i'm not surprised and that's bad like it's bad that i'm not surprised by that yeah it's I, I I know nobody likes to point that out that even in in queer spaces that like, trans people struggle to fit in, but it's like very much true and still a thing. Mm-hmm. Like I actually I knew people personally who, when the all the shit was hitting the fan with Orange Cheeto at the height <laughs> of like his his quest to like really demonize trans people, I knew a lot of people who were just sitting on the sidelines and saying, well. I've got my right to marry and I don't care about trans people because I don't know any trans people or their fight is not my fault, my fight because I don't relate to them. And it's just like, that is despicable. Guess what? I cut those fuckers out of my life. Yeah. It it, it says something that I fit more into the horror community than the queer community as, as bad as that is to say. I actually, I always say this on the podcast. Always. I've said it a couple of times. It's, it's, Partly in jest, partly not, where I'm just like, I hate the gays so much. Not not because I actually hate gay people, but because there is definitely a toxicity within the gay, gay male community, really, about a lot of things. And so I actually don't, I have a handful of gay friends, but it's not like, I guess I don't have like a like a pod, <laughs> like like a, a giant bubble of gay friends that I'm just outgoing with because I find myself, but I don't know, I don't know what I'm even trying to say, but it's, I, 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 I've chalked it up to internalized homophobia sometimes, but then I've also talked it up to like, but y'all aren't like... Well, I think it's a privilege piece, right? Like, I think one of the things that I reflect on when I look at my interpretation of Silence of the Lambs is I always thought people were blowing the controversy out of proportion, Because I wanted to say, well, this film is great, and it won Oscars, and it brought horror into popular culture in a different way. Let's not fucking shoot the thing that is most celebrated from the community. But to do so, I have to acknowledge my privilege of saying, well, this film has never hurt me, because I've never had to live with the repercussions of what Buffalo Bill has done to the community. And like that sucks, because it's so easy for me to just cast aside the very relevant and very real concerns that a lot of people are trying to voice. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people in the queer community do that on the regular with a lot of really pertinent issues. We just choose to 
say, oh, well, it doesn't affect me because I'm on the upper echelon of the queer community, so I don't need to address it. And see, I I will sing the praises of Silence of the Lambs and say, like, I love this movie. It's one of my favorite movies. But also at the same time, I will for sure in any conversation call out the bullshit trans politics like surrounding it. Mm -hmm. I do like obviously the issues would persist no matter what. If this wasn't such a cultural milestone, would would it, I mean, I guess I'm answering my question. It would not be talked about as much. But even yeah, from where you're coming from, Joe, it's true. Like, you know, I'm not offended by this movie because it hasn't made like a cultural imprint on my identity as a gay man, mm -hmm. whereas it has had that effect on the trans community as a whole, because it's just like, oh, yeah, the Silence of the Lambs, you can have a reductive statement. Oh, it's the one with the with the crazy trans person. Like, that, that's that's what that movie is for some people. And I think that when trans representation is not great, <laughs> even again, even in 2021, mm -hmm. it's just like, OK, well, what what what's the closest example of a uh, of trans that you that you've been around that you've seen a lot of people probably go to the silence of the lambs and it's this character with really no backstory who is just an inherently uh, presented as inherently evil and also trans and i think it's it's different than a lot of some of the other transphobic texts like reina you said dress to kill is one of your favorites and i see <laughs> a lot of people referencing sleepaway camp as a problematic fave and the difference is, is that those films didn't win Oscars, and they didn't reshape the popular consciousness around what it means to be trans. Mm -hmm. So sure, those films are still filled with issues, but mm -hmm. I think if they're easier for us to forgive because people don't cite them when they're trying to weaponize their hate. And I think that's where the problem with Silence of the Lambs comes from, is that people do weaponize it in discussions about it. It's like... Rather than people talking about the filmmaking aspects and whatnot, I see just shitty arguments between whether trans people exist or not. It's kind of exhausting. And it's like, yeah, I love Sleepaway Camp. I love Dress to Kill. But like you said, those didn't shape like public view of anything. Whereas this, it does. Like, like I had an uncle I used to talk to, like refer to Buffalo Bill. I was like, oh, that cross-dressing freak. And then Jeez. just go just go on a diatribe about like oh yeah uh, men wanting to wear dresses are like fucking freaks and whatnot. I'm assuming this uncle did not know you were trans at the time of saying this. No, God no, and I don't talk to this uncle anymore. So if fuck fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, and I think that was like his only real exposure to trans people was this kind of awful betrayal. Oh, I mean, there there was, oh God, there was a stat that I read that it was like only 16% of people in, in some given survey had actually like known a transgender person. And it's one of those things where so many of the people that are having this say on like what, like whether or not trans people are real or not, um, they don't know those people. And mm -hmm. the only exposure they have to trans people is something like the Silence of the Lambs. And yeah. it's again, it's something where I'm like reconciling, like, okay, like that's, not necessarily the film's fault like it's again there's like a burden of uh, not proof but like there's like a there's just a burden on people to like seek the answers out for themselves but of course people aren't going to do that this is me saying that sounds the lambs isn't poor in it's transgender representation but it's just like ah, i wish people would just do more work too sometimes well i think 
Also, what you're inadvertently saying is that there's a responsibility by people who are making films, who are greenlighting films, who are writing screenplays, who are filming and casting, that if we had more varied representation, then this wouldn't be as much of a problem because there would be other options. You know, there would be Bit from 2019, which is a great example of trans representation in a horror film. It's very pro-queer. And yet nobody talks about that. Well, I'll, I mean, I'll walk that back. Lots of people no. <laughs> talk about that within certain circles, but it didn't make the kind of waves that Silence of the Lambs did. But if we had a dozen more bits, we might be able to start counteracting some of the more negative depictions that we see in things like Silence of the Lambs. And I was going to say that when I first started writing again and like getting back into the like community, at first I didn't disclose that I was trans at all. Like one, it's nobody's business or anything. Mm, right. But but I figured I want I personally wanted to be kind of that positive representation of like, hey, I'm a writer. I know my shit. I just happen to be trans. Mm-hmm. Who cares? Like you had a good opinion of me before. Right. Um, what has changed? Yeah, pretty much. And I know some people don't wish to be perceived like that, but that's where I come from. Like I want to normalize the the trans experience. I mean, in any facet of queerness, I feel like that's at least a shared area of our lives. Like, I mean, again, our show is called Horror Queers. We are publicizing the fact that we are queer men. Wait, what? As hosts on this show. <laughs> but but again, like, it's not like I walk around. Like, if I meet someone, I'm like, hi, I'm Trace. I'm gay. Mm-hmm. It's because, again, it's a, a it's I feel like people can pretty much tell right away if I'm gay or not. <laughs> But 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 it's just like you said, it's not really any of their business. So if for some reason I was straight passing, ugh, I hate that term, but like, and didn't want to disclose the fact that I was gay, it's my business. And I feel like, and I mean, oh God, I, I might be stepping in hot water. So just, you know, tell me. Um, but I feel like with society is so focused on genitalia. And again, like you see a lot of crimes against trans folk where it's like, oh, um, this man went home with a transgender woman and of course like like the crying game like the crying game when that happens like you know you have this man's disgusted reaction to a trans woman's genitalia it's just this focus on genitalia instead of the person which i just think is fascinating you should also note that the crying game comes out the year after this so it's like very much in that popular consciousness it's either something that is a secret and a joke or something that will kill you it's presented as almost a twist in that movie and it is presented as a twist in sleepaway camp so that's the thing right like how to to normalize it you can't hinge (laughs) a narrative plot development on someone being trans well and these these stories that are coming out like the ones that are making it broadly into the popular consciousness all treated as though the scariest most horrifying thing that could happen is that you might find yourself with someone with different genitalia than you expected as though nothing could be scarier nothing could be more threatening i think at this point it would be a little redundant to go back and talk more about you know wrote aspects of the film that people are all familiar with i don't know should we just move to talking about like what the legacy of the film is and how we feel about it. I just wanted to say one more thing. And if this is a, if we, if y'all feel like we've already addressed this enough, then we can move on. But it it really is just kind of going into back with like what Jonathan Demme is, I guess because it's a fictional character, like you have straight men writing 
a presumably trans fictional character. If this was a real person, it's like, well, no, what am I trying to say? When you have the creator of the piece saying this character isn't trans, but they wrote things that make it very clearly, at least coded at the very least, that this character is trans, but they don't realize that. It's it's such a weird, tricky forest for me, right? Like, it's like, okay, well, you have the person who's writing this character, who created this character, saying they're not trans, but everything that they've written unintentionally codes them as trans. It's just, it's such a weird gray area for me, but maybe it shouldn't be gray. Hmm. Yeah, it's a lot to chew on. Yeah, yeah. I, I've... <laughs> I, I'm not looking for an answer. I just, I'm just like openly pondering here. See, I, and that's the issue with talking about this movie. And I think it will always be the issue with talking about it. It's like, it's so gray on everything. It's legacy, it's betrayal of people, it's intent that, I don't think there's almost necessarily a correct argument for anything. Mm-hmm. Right. I will say, I think Harris deserves a lot of blame because in part the film is taking its cues from that book. And so we can blame certain things on Harris. And I know Tracy referenced that there is more with Bill and mm-hmm. their upbringing and that kind of stuff. So maybe we'll, we'll be proven incorrect. But I do appreciate the fact that Demi when accused when protested when presented with evidence that the film was doing harm by the people that it was harming he did make efforts to address it so um I know after the Oscars he he did distribute pamphlets from queer activists and that of course as you said Reina he made his apology film which is Philadelphia which I also don't love I actually think it's a bit of a garbage piece of shit in terms of its <laughs> queer representation just it's so chaste right like it's very whatever 1992-1993 in yeah. its depiction of a of a, a gay relationship but at least he listened and made efforts because I think that's what we want from our straight allies when they're presented like, hey, you're doing shit and you're hurting people. We don't want them to get defensive. We want them to fucking listen and learn. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's what I want from creators that are presented with that. They'd be like, I fucked up. You're right. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. I will do better. Like prime prime example. Little tangent is like last year when deadly premonition 2 came out and somebody pointed out to the creator they're like hey look there's this highly transphobic representation in your game and instead of doubling down and getting all defensive like saying oh this is my fucking work of art how dare you he went no you're right 100 percent. i'm sorry i'm gonna rewrite the scene we're gonna patch the game and totally fix that Wow. Whereas you can have something like Sia when people are accusing oh, her of, <laughs> of being oh, offensive man. towards the autistic community and she doubles down and is like, no, 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 I'm right, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, there, there's definitely, you know, I, she just kept doing it. <laughs> so it's just <laughs> like, oh my God, stop, please. Uh, also, I again, it's like the blame's falling on Demi. Yes, he's the director of this, but it's like he didn't write the script either. Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is weird to like, hey, Ted Talley, anything from your corner? No, you're just yeah. going to leave it to Demi. Okay, got it, got it. <laughs> yeah, he was like, Demi was like the face of this movie. So I feel like we've all had like a lot of conversation about this and there's no, there's no conclusion. I mean, and m- maybe that's also wrong, but I just feel like like we've just been <sighs> positing a lot of things. <laughs> there's so much to talk about. 
Well, at the end of the day, the text will live on, right? And the sad reality for a lot of people who are hurt by this film is that they're probably going to have to relive their trauma and what the film has done to them every five to 10 years as it celebrates different milestones, because it will keep coming back up. So I think it just becomes important that when those people go through difficult times as the film resurfaces in the popular dialogue that we need to be sensitive to them but also i it would be great if we could you know when this hits 35 in a couple of years if we could say cool look at all the progress that we fucking made i have only one solution hannibal season four (laughs) netflix give it to us now (laughs) with elliot page still as clarice clarice is now a trans man Yes. Ooh. Make it happen. Oh, and that okay, okay. Do we keep Bill as trans? Because I actually think that could be a interesting dynamic if we have a trans FBI agent tracking a trans killer. I'd be up for it. I mean that would be fascinating regardless, but also just like, hey, let's give trans characters and trans actors more roles. Mm-hmm. I don't know why because again, whenever I think of like um because there's always a thing of like, oh, like you know, when when an actor Acts, when a straight actor goes gay, it's like, oh, all the Oscars. Look at Jared Leto or Matthew uh, in uh, Dallas Buyers Club or Felicity Huffman in Trans America. Oh, Jesus God. Yuck. So I'll just say this. Hannibal has had its its gay and queer seasons. Like, it, give it its trans season. Right. right. Oh, yes, yeah. we are owed the trans season of Hannibal. <laughs> mm-hmm. and it needs to happen. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, okay, so we obviously went on a big bill tangent here. Um, do we want to talk about anything else before signing off? I I think this is the best place to leave it. Well, this is a bit of an unorthodox episode for us because we did not go into the plot. So hopefully everyone that's listening has seen this film already. <laughs> if you haven't, like, go watch it. Yeah. yeah. Make up your own mind. There's also like a $7 mass market Blu-ray. There you go. You don't have to spend $40 on it at Criterion. But you probably should because that criterion is really good. Oh, it's the special really features are great. Yeah, it's yeah. great. It's great. <sighs> but yeah, um, well, um, before we announce what we're covering next week, um, first of all, Reina, thank you for coming on to this episode so much. Yes. Yeah, not not a problem. Thank you both for having me. I'm sorry it was a very unorthodox episode. <laughs> oh, no, we, we like these ones. It keeps us on our toes. I saw the movie and I was like, ooh, this is uh, going to be an interesting one. <laughs> I mean, I definitely appreciate your insight, too, because, again, like, we don't, like, Joe and I haven't lived the trans experience, so it's not really an insight that we can have on, like, we can have our opinions, but they're not, you know, informed opinions, I guess is how I'll put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and I am just but one person, but thank you for to you both for having me on to talk about it you mean you don't represent the entire trans community? No, believe it or not, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, Reina, um, t- to tell everyone where they can find you on social media and talk about anything you want to plug. So you can find me on social media, mainly just Twitter and Instagram at JFC Doomblade. I also do a lot of freelance work for bloodydisgusting.com. I'm also a staff writer at screenqueens.com. Also, I run a horror podcast that Trace mentioned earlier where... Um, I basically take someone who's completely new to the genre. I mean, pretty much the only like horror movie she had seen was Halloween. (laughs) And I just throw like all these movies at her and we talk about them with guests. You can find that at horror in session and we are available on Apple podcasts and Spotify. So um, have you made Kayla watch wrong turn six yet? Oh God. You know what? I had texted (laughs) her the other night and I was like, listen, 
This is going to be one of the least downloaded episodes, but we are going to have great conversation. I am like, we are going to do an episode where, because I don't want to show you the whole series because three to five are really <laughs> oh, no. boring. Don't uh, do that to anyone. Yeah, no. So I told her, I'm like, we're going to do an episode where we just watch six in the reboot. Yeah. <laughs> okay. She, okay. Yeah. She was like, dot, dot, dot. Um... All right. <laughs> I, I don't know if I told you this, Joe, but basically it's like Reyna was like, oh, I watched I watched the first five. I'm not watching six. And I was like, OK, but Reyna, you really should watch six. <laughs> not because it's good, but because it's so bonkers that you can't believe it exists. Yes, that that is what six is. I, I texted him right after, like in all caps, what the fuck did I just watch? Right. Yeah, it is a once in a lifetime viewing experience that has to be seen to be believed. But um, yeah, so uh, we're not discussing Wrong Turn 6 today, though. So we'll finish off with that. Oh my god. <laughs> if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers and join our Facebook Horror Queers group to hang out with other listeners. You can also find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we have covered. And we've also got a YouTube channel that we're currently putting putting all of our micro queers recordings on so you can either listen to those on friday or watch us uncut on friday Ooh, uncut sounds dirty i do love uncut oh my god <laughs> if you have a moment please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice and if you want even more content please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers uh this month man i am excited joe uh everyone test your might as we've got episodes on the new Mortal Kombat movie and an audio commentary on the original 1995 Mortal Kombat film. That one was directed by Paul W.S. Anderson, so we're going to keep with that theme of video <laughs> games and Anderson <laughs> and have another episode on the new Monster Hunter film. I mean, new Monster Hunter film. The only Monster Hunter film that's come out ever. <laughs> and possibly ever will. Yes. Yeah, possibly ever will. We hope for more, but... Whew, not sure that's going to happen. We'll also have mini-sodes on uh, festival recaps from South by Southwest and Sundance and a discussion of jump scares and horror films. But, Joe, mm -hmm. next week we're actually kind of continuing, or I guess starting, our video game theme month on the main feed. So what are we talking about next week? Indeed. I'm so excited to revisit the soggy, foggy town of Silent Hill Trace. Me too. This is a movie where when I saw it, I um I literally turned to my whoever I saw it with and said, <laughs> "What just happened?" <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, uh, trying to unpack what the fuck happens in this movie is going to be a barrel of fun. So excited! So yeah, we our April twenty twenty one is filled with video game horror. So be sure to check in next week. But until then, we can cross out the Silence of the Lambs. Yes, and cross out horror queers. You've made it to the end of another bloody disgusting podcast. Congratulations. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, Nightmare on Film Street, and more. <laughs>